Shalom, everybody. Shalom. Now, that's not bad, but we're going to try that one more time, this time with just a bit more enthusiasm. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you. Now you're making a nice Jewish boy and girl feel at home. We are privileged to be back with you here at Parkway Community Church. I don't know how many of you know that we've been here a couple of times before. In fact, the first time that we were here, we met a woman and her husband who were attending at that time. I don't know how many of you know them, Selena and Michael Coffey. I see a lot, oh, okay, I see a lot of shaking heads. And uh, at that time, Selena didn't know Jesus personally. And through the course of time and through the course of my wife's ministry to her, um, Selena obviously came to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And we are so grateful. Every time we think of this church and every time we think of the opportunity that we had to do exactly what God has called us to in the ministry of Jews for Jesus. And they are such good friends to us and have been all these many years. And so it's really a joy and privilege for us to be here today. What you see before you this morning is a typical table setting found in millions of Jewish homes throughout the world at Passover. There are three things that I'd like for us all to see here this morning. One is Christ, the bread of life. Two is Christ, the Lamb of God, and three are the elements of redemption found in the Passover. Once again, that's Christ, the bread of life, Christ, the Lamb of God, and the elements of redemption found in the Passover. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 22, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 13. Again, that's the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. Now, all four of the Gospels give an account of the Passover. But the book of Luke is unique. And the reason why I say it's unique is because it stresses something. If you listen to me as I read, or if you happen to be reading along with me, you'll notice one particular word that's mentioned four times in this short passage. I'm reading from a New American Standard Version, so follow along with me as I read. It says, starting in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large, furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they departed and found everything, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, before I tell you the one word that was mentioned four times in that short passage, I'd like to ask you a few questions. One of the things that you'll discover about me this morning is that I'm someone who believes in congregational participation. You see, I don't believe that Christianity is a spectator sport. Okay, so I want your involvement with me this morning. I will be asking questions, and Dan, while I didn't ask you if it was okay, I already know that this church, you speak in church. Okay, so, you know, you can answer me when I ask the questions. Don't feel like you can't. And then the other thing is that some of my questions, I mean, they're all really simple, but some of them really just require that you raise your hand to show me that you know what I'm talking about. And that's how I'll begin this morning. My first question for you is this. How many of you recognize a passage of Scripture that I just read as being from the time when Jesus was about to enter the city of Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion? Okay, practically all of you. Now, how many of you also know 
that in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, it was said that there lived about a million people. Well, not as many of you knew that, but now that you all know both of those things, don't you think it's strange that Jesus would have gone ahead as he did in that passage of Scripture and told his disciples to go and find one man in the city of Jerusalem who was carrying a pitcher of water? And that's how the disciples would know who they were supposed to follow. Do you think that's strange? It's not strange. And the reason why I say it's not strange is because in Jesus' day, it was women's work to carry water. Oh, so you see, when the disciples came upon that one man who was carrying water, they knew that they'd come upon the right person, whom they were to follow and where they were to, quote, unquote, prepare the Passover. The word prepare or preparation was the one word mentioned four times in that short passage. Preparation for the Passover today might begin one week in advance, two weeks in advance, even a whole month in advance. And what will happen at this time will be that the houses must be cleansed. Now, they'll not only have to be cleansed of your usual dust and dirt, but they'll also have to be cleansed of a substance known as leaven. This is a piece of unleavened bread. We call it matzah. Now, how many of you know what the Apostle Paul says that leaven usually represents? Sin. Being unleavened means that the bread is without sin. Therefore, in a sense, this bread should remind us of our Lord Jesus, who also is unleavened without sin. Now, this is not only the holiday of Passover but it's also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's for eight days that this is the only type of bread which we may eat in a Jewish home. This means that you have to get rid of a few things, such as your hostess Twinkies, if you can still find them, your Wonder Bread, even your Oreo cookies have to go. And I've got to tell you, if you're a diehard Oreo cookie eater like I am, Passover can be one traumatic experience for you. (laughs) Now, I've got to tell you something else, and this may make some of you happy and others of you sad. You know that in a Jewish home, it is not the woman's responsibility to see that the house is clean? Well, I mean, I was, I was expecting a bigger response than that. <laughs> Let me tell you, in my home today, and in the home of many of my Jewish brethren, the lady of the house will still do much of the hard house cleaning. And it's not your once-a-week kind of cleaning that gets done. It's a real special cleaning when the whole house is clean from top to bottom. The walls, the floors, the cupboards, the cabinets. I mean, people even paint their home at this time. In fact, where do you think the spring cleaning comes from, if not the Passover? Well, you see, because it is the man's responsibility to see that the house is clean. The day before Passover, the mother will leave a token piece of leaven, maybe the breadcrumbs from that morning's toast, someplace in the house for the man to find. That night, father comes home from work, takes his youngest son on what we in Jews for Jesus call a GI inspection. They take some strange cleaning utensils, such as a wooden spoon, a feather, and a white linen napkin. And they go throughout the house, and they search out the leaven, and they look high and low under the tables all around the house. Maybe they'll come to the windowsill. And the father will see the breadcrumbs sitting on that windowsill. And what he'll do is he'll take the feather... And he'll sweep the crumbs into the spoon. Then being careful not to drop any of it, he'll wrap it all in this white linen napkin. Then the father and his son will proceed to go to the center of town, to the local synagogue, where they'll find other men and their sons. And they'll be waiting around a huge bonfire. And they'll be waiting. And they'll be waiting. And they'll be waiting for the rabbi to come. You see, once the rabbi arrives, he'll say a blessing over all of these things, and all the men will toss it into the fire. Thus, at this point, the houses will be considered hygienically clean. Then the father will go home, 
and he'll take off his jacket if he happens to be wearing one, and he'll put on something that looks like this. Now this is called a kittle. It's a white kingly robe. You see, in Judaism, white symbolizes royalty. It's also a symbol of purity and joy. Not purple, as in many churches, but white. Now, in addition to putting on this kittle, this white robe, he'll also pick up a cap that looks like this. This is a mitre, or a cantor's cap. And if placed on the head properly, it should resemble a crown. For you see, the man is considered to be the king of his house, and his wife is considered to be his queen. Then he proceeds to pick up a book that looks like this. This is called a Haggadah. Can you all say that? Not bad. Try it one more time. I mean, I heard it from this ear, but I didn't hear it from this ear. So let's try that one more time. Haggadah. Much better. Now, Haggadah means the telling, or the telling of the story of Passover. And the Father will open this to the first page. Now, I know that some of you may be thinking that I'm actually opening this book backwards. And if you look at the book carefully, you're going to see it's beautifully illustrated. It tells the whole story of Passover. It has songs. It has prayers within. And one of its characteristics is that it's a book that's written both in Hebrew and in English. The English portion, of course, is written from left to right. The Hebrew portion is written from right to left. You tell me, which has been around longer, Hebrew or English? (laughs) I think you know. Now the father will turn to the first page. And this is what he reads. Blessed art thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by his commandments and commanded us to search out the leaven, all manner of leaven that is in my possession that I have not observed, searched out, or had cognizance of, shall be regarded as null and be common property, even as the dust of the earth. Thus, at this point, the houses will be considered hygienically clean. Then we come to the lighting of the candles. We come to what's called the Seder. Now, Seder means service or order of service. But before we begin the Seder, we do need to light those candles. But before we light those candles, I have a few more questions for you. First of all, up until this point, who's been doing all the hard work? The woman, right? And who's been having all the fun and getting all the credit? Well, that's not fair, is it? It was quiet? You didn't hear anybody? There wasn't one man who thought it's fair, huh? Who did? Who th- you think it's fair? Are you married? Is your wife here today? <laughs> you know, there's always one in every crowd. I got a job for you in a little bit. Uh-oh. And we'll tell your wife about that, too. You know, it's not fair. And it's only appropriate that the woman should light the candles to bring in the Passover. For you see, it wasn't through the seed of man or the will of man that the light of the world came in, but rather it was through the seed of woman and the will of God that Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world. So I'm going to ask my wife, Janie, to come, and she is going to light the candles, and she's going to chant a blessing over them.
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to light the lights of Passover. Amen. Amen. Now you see before you four cups. Each one of these cups is taken at an appropriate time during the Passover. Each one of the cups has a specific name. The four cups just by themselves represent a fourfold promise. That promise is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And while we won't look there this morning, if you're taking notes, and I welcome you doing that, you might like to write down that scripture reference and look it up later on. Now, normally in a Jewish home, at each place setting, you wouldn't find four cups. You'd only find one cup. And that one cup would get filled four different times during the actual Passover Seder or service. I've placed four cups here, though, so that I could point out their four different names and the four different times that they're taken. This first cup is called the cup of blessing. The second cup is called the cup of affliction or plagues. The third cup is known as the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is called the cup of hallel or praise. Now, I know that as you came in this morning, you all got a brochure that looks like this, or at least you should have. If you don't have one, we'll get one to you later on. This is called Christ and the Passover. And there are different things within this brochure that will help you to follow along with what I'm doing, although you don't really need to look at this. But if you are looking at it and you notice that I gave different names than the names of the cups that were in here, well, recognize the fact that I'm doing the presentation this morning, so it's my way, not this way. (laughs) Going back to the first cup, and I will give you those names again, the cup of blessing, the cup of affliction, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise or hallel. Going back to the first cup, this was called the cup of blessing. And a blessing is chanted over this cup. This is how it goes. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine, the first cup known as the cup of blessing, many times today is confused with the communion cup, which Jesus passed amongst his disciples at that last supper, which incidentally was a Passover celebration. But no, truly, this is just the cup of blessing. Now you see before you what's commonly called a Seder plate. And if you look at this plate closely, you're going to notice that it has six compartments. The six compartments correspond to the items that are found here on the table. Normally, the items are in little glass dishes, and they're placed right on the plate. But in order for you to see what the plate looks like, that's why I've kept those items off to the side. At this point, I'd like to explain the items to you and tell you what the rabbis say they represent. This first item is called karpas, greens, usually parsley, celery, or lettuce. Now, the rabbis say that the greens are to represent life. This, which is really not one of the elements, but is found on the Seder plate, or found on the table, I should say, at Passover, all this is is ordinary salt water. And the rabbi said that the salt water is to represent tears. At the appropriate time, we're told to take from the greens, which represent life, dip them into the salt water, which represents tears, and eat. Because the rabbis say that life is immersed in tears. This next item, bitter herbs, whoa. You call it horseradish? 
We call it Jewish Claritin. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have sinus problems, but if you do, after the service, come up and take one whiff, and I promise you'll be cleared up for the rest of the day. Now, the rabbis say that this bitter herb is to represent the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. And at the appropriate time, we're told to take a piece of the unleavened bread, and then we're told to take a good, healthy portion, usually about a tablespoonful. Well, you know, normally at this point, I like to ask for adult volunteers, you might imagine. <laughs> it's not too often I get one. Every once in a while, I do. But there's always a fail-safe. The fail-safe is that there's always someone who thinks it's fair for the women to do all the hard work. <laughs> now, in light of the fact that your wife is not here, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't do me that much good. It wouldn't give me a whole lot of joy to have you come up and do that. And there's always another fail-safe. You know who the fail-safe is? The pastor. <laughs> hey, Dan. Why is it that you're sitting all the way in the back? No, I'm not going to do this to you either. Anyway, we are told to take a tablespoonful. They will, but I will not. <laughs> you know, if you take that much horseradish at one time, a strange physiological reaction comes over you. You begin to cry. Tears roll down your face. Why? Why? Because it's to remind us of the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. Now, I'm going to stop here for a moment because you need to know something about me. You know, Pastor Dan, you gave me a really great introduction. I thank you very much. And I know that you guys were applauding when he said that I was married to my wife for 35 years. You were applauding for her. I, I, I know that. But the thing that I need to really tell you, I really need to tell you this, is while I don't take myself seriously, I do take the things of God seriously. I'm not here to do stand-up. I'm not here to make you laugh. But if you haven't yet noticed, you will notice that there is a lot of heaviness surrounding the Passover. If you haven't noticed this yet, you're going to recognize the fact that the Passover is an object lesson. And really, the Passover has been handed down from generation to generation for the past 3,500 years. And without the use of all of these objects, my people would have forgotten about it. And so this is why we do a Passover like this. And this is a time when families get together and when there's a lot of things going on, but we like to have joy in our families as well. So, yes, I am making you laugh. That's not what I'm designed here to do. What I am designed here to do is to help you to remember the truth of the Passover, that bitter herb is to rep represent the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. The next item is what we call charoset. Now, charoset is usually a mixture of chopped up apples, nuts, raisins, honey, a little bit of wine giving it a really sweet flavor. And it's normally all chopped up, normally becomes a dark brownish color. And the rabbis say that the sweet mixture is to represent the mortar that went into building the pyramids and the storehouses for Pharaoh. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how could something that would taste so sweet represent such bitter labor? I mean, after all, it's easy to understand how the greens can represent life, the saltwater tears, even that bitter herb bitterness. But why would something that would taste so sweet represent such bitter labor? Well, you know what the rabbis say. They say that even the bitterest of labor tasted sweet when we knew that our redemption drew near, the haroset. The next element is a hard-boiled roasted egg. Now, this hard-boiled roasted egg is to represent the daily temple sacrifice. Let me explain what I mean. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. 
Now, the temple was the only place where the Jewish people were allowed to make a sacrifice. When the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people could no longer make a sacrifice. Therefore, they've taken the symbol of an egg, which any of you who know anything about chickens know that eggs are given once a day, usually in the morning. So this hard-boiled roasted egg is to represent that daily temple sacrifice given once a day in the morning and roasted with fire. The next element is a bitter root, usually an onion or a horseradish root. Now, the rabbis say that this bitter root is to represent the way that we come into the world. You see, it's through sin and pain that we enter the world. Therefore, this is to represent the bitter root of life. The final element normally found on a Seder plate is this. And this is an actual shank bone of a lamb. And this is to represent the lamb that was slain for us at Passover. And if you'll recall, because there is no Passover sacrifice today, this is why we take the shank bone to represent that sacrifice for my Jewish people today. And it's to represent the lamb that was slain for us at Passover. Now we come to the second cup, and this is known as affliction or plagues. That's right. I'm giving you an awful lot of material, and I know I don't expect you to remember everything I share with you this morning, but if you can take one or two things with you that you didn't know before you came, that would give me some satisfaction. This is called the cup of affliction or plagues, and at first we don't drink from this cup. At first what we do is we take a finger, and we drop a drop for each one of the plagues which God brought upon Pharaoh. And the plagues went something like this. Blood, frogs, hail, lice, moraine, flies, boils, locusts, and darkness to the firstborn. Uh, de death to the firstborn. Now, you may be, uh, if you would recall that first Passover with me again, you'll recall that God commanded the people to have their loins girded, sandals on their feet. And they were told to take a yearling lamb without spot, without blemish, to slay it and to collect its blood in a basin, and then to take a green spongy material, hyssop to be exact, to dip the hyssop into the blood and to place the blood on the two side posts and the top lintel of the door. That's the two side posts and the top lintel of the door, thus sealing the house with the blood of the lamb. The night of Passover came, and the death angel flew, and he came upon the houses that were sealed with the blood of the lamb, and he... That's exactly where we got the name for our holiday. Now, at this point, we come to what, unfortunately, for many of my people today, is the most important part of the Passover. And I say, unfortunately, because it's the meal. And it's not that the meal isn't a wonderful time of feasting and celebration. The problem is that too much emphasis has been placed on the meal rather than on the rest of the beauty and the significance of the Passover. Now, I'd like to give you an idea of the kinds of things that you get to eat at Passover. But before I do that, I want to share with you one of the many traditions. This is known as the tradition of the matzotosh, or matzah bag. Now, if you look at this carefully, you're going to notice that while it's one unit, it has three compartments to it. Notice. One. Two. Three. Now, normally, inside each one of these compartments, you'll find a piece of matzah. And if you were to ask two or three rabbis what the unity represented, you might get two or three different answers. One might say that it represents the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another might say that it represents the order of worship, the priests, the Levites, and the people. We, however, as Jewish believers in Jesus, feel that this matzotash 
This unity represents our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, before the meal begins, the Father will take from the middle piece of matzah. And who would that represent? The Son. That's right. He'll take it and he'll break it. This smaller portion he'll put back in the matzotash. This larger portion is very important. This larger portion is known as the afikomen. Now, afikomen is a Greek word which means dessert or that which comes after. The father will take this and what he'll do is he'll wrap it in a piece of white linen. Then he'll hide it, or if I might, bury it till later on in the service. Now, you may be wondering the significance of those pillows besides the fact that they hide the afikomen. Well, again, if you'll remember that first Passover with me again, you'll remember that God commanded the people to have their loins girded, sandals on their feet. They were to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. In fact, the Jewish people at that first Passover partook standing up. Why? Because they were in terrible fear that at any moment they would be sent out of the land. Well, those pillows represent the fact that today... As we participate in the Passover, we can do so sitting back, reclining at table, because we don't have the fear that one, such as Pharaoh, would usher us out of the land. Now, let me give you an idea quickly of the kinds of things that you get to eat at Passover. You might start off with appetizers, and you'd have such things as chopped chicken livers and onions, eggs and onions, gefilte fish and onions. Now, I don't know if you're noticing the common thread here, But if you'd like to know more about the kinds of things that you get to eat at Passover, speak to my wife afterwards. We'll be at the resource table. She can tell you all about it. Then there's also a soup course. Then there is also a main course where you might have chicken, roast beef, turkey. You might have all three, depending upon the size of your family, because this is a time for families to get together. It's the biggest feast that we have in the year. But then there are also numerous desserts. But you know, the Passover cannot be complete without everyone taking from the afikomen. But it was hidden. Now, what you may or may not realize is that in a traditional Jewish home, a Passover Seder like this would take between two and four hours. And the reason for that is much of the Haggadah is read, the cups are taken, the elements are explained, the meal is participated in, and so by the time you get to this point, There isn't anyone who can sit still at the table any longer, but especially the children. So a game was developed in the centuries following Christ's advent here on earth, known as the Afikomen Hunt. And as at this time, the children are sent throughout the house to search out the Afikomen. And the child who finds it gets a chance to bring it back to the head of the house, who will pay a reward for it. Once a reward has been paid, the head of the house will take it, he'll unwrap it, He'll bless it, and then he'll break it. And he'll break it into at least all of size pieces, passing it around to the people sitting at the table with him. And you see, it has to be in at least an all of size piece. Because the rabbis say that nothing smaller than an all of size piece may be blessed. Well, you know, Jesus took this bread at that Last Supper, that Passover celebration. He took this same bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, take eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And all his disciples ate. Now, I want to point out a few things about this bread I think you'll find very interesting. The first thing I said about it before was that it was unleavened, right? That reminded us of Jesus because he too was unleavened without sin. Then you notice I took the middle piece of matzah and I broke it. A portion of it I wrapped in a piece of white linen Then it was hidden or buried for a time. 
Then it was brought back after having been paid for with a price. Who else do you know who was unleavened, broken, wrapped in white linen, buried for a time, brought back after having been paid for with a price? And on top of all of the rest, if you look at this bread, for those of you sitting in the front, if you look at this bread in front of the candle, you should be able to see that it's striped and pierced. Can you see that from where you're sitting? The bread is striped and it's pierced. In the Gospel of Isaiah, and I always call it gospel since it means good news, in the Gospel of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, it speaks of one who was to come, who was to be pierced through for our transgressions. He was to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and with his stripes we are we are healed. Who does this bread remind you of, if not our Lord Jesus? Then we come to the third cup, and this is called the cup of redemption. And today the head of the house will take this cup. He'll chant a blessing as I did earlier. He'll drink from the cup. He'll pass it around to those sitting at the table with him. All will drink from this cup, and all will recall the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Well, Jesus took this cup as well at that last supper along with that bread. He took this cup. He blessed it. He poured it out for his disciples, and he said, take, drink. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you in the new covenant, the New Testament. This do in remembrance of me. And all his disciples drank. And all his disciples recalled the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. But you know, they began to understand that he was speaking of a far greater redemption, that being from out of the bondage of slavery to sin. Now, I'm not sure how many of you recognize what I just pointed out to you, but in case you didn't, what I've just pointed out to you is the typical communion service found right within the traditional Jewish Passover. How unfortunate that more of my own Jewish people don't know the significance of Christ within their own Passover. But I've got to tell you something else. Pastor Dan, I do not ever believe that everyone that I speak to in a church is a believer in Jesus. And there may be someone sitting here this morning who has yet to recognize the fact that they have sin in their life, that they need someone, a person, to remove that sin, to help them to have that sin be cleared away. If you haven't recognized it yet, that perfect Lamb of God is Jesus, is Yeshua our Messiah. If you don't know Him yet personally, I would encourage you not to leave this place today without having an understanding of what I'm talking about what that really means, and how you can experience what we all will experience, and that is eternal life. But my eternal life, I know, is guaranteed and assured to be with him as opposed to separated from him. So don't leave this place this morning without that assurance. Now, you may be wondering the significance of this cup. This is Elijah's cup. And in Jewish tradition, it said that Elijah must come first to usher in the coming of the Messiah. And every year, there's a full place setting with food and drink set out for Elijah. And every year, at the end of the meal, the children are sent to the door to open it, for it said that Elijah would come through the door and take from the cup. And that would be the way we would know the Messiah is coming that year. Well, every year, we have disappointed children and disappointed adults, because Elijah, he doesn't come. We feel, however, that one has already come in the power and the spirit of Elijah, that being John the Baptist. One day John was baptizing at the Jordan River and he beheld a bronze-bearded Jew coming over the face of a mountain and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the what? 
the sin of the world. John the Baptist truly was our Elijah. And then we come to the fourth and the final cup. And this is called the cup of Hallel or praise. Hallel being a shortened version of Hallelujah. And it's at this time that we sing praises to our God, not only for the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but that greater redemption, that being from out of the bondage of slavery to sin. And I encourage you again, if you don't know what I'm speaking about, if you're a little confused, make sure you speak with one of the pastors or myself or my wife. We'd be happy and delighted to share the truth of who Jesus is with you. And as I close this portion of the service, I want to use a couple of verses, but you don't need to turn there. I want you to listen carefully. The verses I always like to use in closing this service is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's verses 7 and 8. And the reason I like to use these two verses is because I believe that they capture the entire spirit of the Passover. See if you agree with me. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In my remaining couple of minutes with you here this morning, I'd like to take the opportunity of talking with you just a bit about Jews for Jesus. And as I do that, I have a quick question. Before this morning, how many of you had never had never heard of Jews for Jesus before. Okay, that's, that's good to know. Now, Jews for Jesus, for those of you who may not know, we began about, uh, what would you say, around 2,000 years ago. <laughs> that shouldn't surprise any of you. I mean, you know, if you think about it, all the first believers in Jesus, the question was not whether or not you could be Jewish and be for Jesus, but rather whether or not you could be a Gentile. I don't know what happened, because there's far more of you today than there are of us. But really, our ministry of Jews for Jesus, believe it or not, began 40 years ago in the city of San Francisco. So we are celebrating our 40th anniversary. 40th anniversary is kind of like a generation, especially in the scriptures. And so we're beginning a second generation of Jews for Jesus, at least contemporarily. And we in Jews for Jesus would appreciate your help. And this morning, I mentioned that brochure that you received. You would do me a great favor by opening up that brochure all the way. And you'll notice that the last panel on that brochure is a tear-off. I'm going to ask that you tear that panel off. And I'm going to ask that you fill this out as I speak. This is called an involvement section. And I promise you, it will not involve you in anything you don't want to be involved in. All it will do will enable us to send 200 Jews for Jesus to your doorstep each month. <laughs> but, but, the beauty of it is, is that we come in the form of our newsletter. We would like to send you our newsletter because we think we have a lot to share. You know, I did this presentation now in about 30 minutes. I told you in a traditional Jewish home it would take between two and four hours. We have a lot in our newsletter and our other publications that we can share with you. And we need your help in three different ways. I'm going to share those ways instantaneously with you. The first way in which we need your help is through prayer. If you do not fill out this involvement section today, basically what you're saying is, well, it was great to have you here, but that's it, because there's no way for us to keep in touch. We want you to be praying for us, because that, we can't do our ministry without people like yourselves praying for us. Our vehicle to help you to know how to pray for us is our newsletter, because within the newsletter, we not only share with you how God is moving in the hearts and minds of Jewish people, but also how you can be involved with us, and so we'd like to send that to you. Second way in which we need your help is for you to allow us to help you 
and your witness, both to Jews and non-Jews alike. On that table, we have two tables actually in the back, in the foyer. One of them's got free literature, one of them's got some not-so-free literature. And among the not-so-free literature I want to point out to you is, are some DVDs, one on the Passover. This one is called Survivor Stories. This has the stories of seven Jewish people who escaped the Nazi Holocaust and subsequently became believers in Jesus. My father's testimony is here. What you need to know is that I was the first one in my family to come to faith. My 89, almost 89-year-old father um, has known Jesus now also for over 30 years, and my whole family has come to know him. But anyway, I'd like you to know that this is out there along with a bunch of other things on Passover, etc. Third and final way in which we need your help is financially. And this morning, you're going to be given an opportunity to give financially to Jews for Jesus. And so on this tear-off, if you're going to give a gift, that's another reason why we want you to fill this out. Number one, so that we will be able to send you a tax-deductible receipt. But far more importantly, we want to be able to send you a personal thank you note. Because we want you always to know that when we receive a gift from any one of you, that we don't take that gift for granted. And as I close, there's always one more thing to say. And actually, I've got two. Number one, we're going to be showing you a short DVD clip. You've seen a couple already, but this one is going to be about the work of Jews for Jesus in Israel. What you need to know is that there are over 20 Sabras, 20 native-born Israelis who have come to believe in Jesus who are on our staff ministering to the whole land of Israel. We want you to see a little bit of the work that we're doing over there, and we want you to know that because the money that we receive goes to work such as that as well as to support us in our efforts to do the work within Jews for Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity of being here this morning. And we pray that you would join us in what for us has been a 35-plus year adventure with Jews for Jesus. If we can show that DVD clip now.